you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <clears throat> Today, I would like to talk about change. And I'm going to read a very large swath of 1 Corinthians in typical Pauline fashion. He uses a lot of words, a lot, a lot, a lot of words to say something that Jesus said in a sentence. So we'll read Paul's words and then we'll read Jesus' sentence. Um, but they're very important. Both of them are very, very, very important. Obviously, they are. And I want to talk about um, the, the inevitability of change to either crush you or renew you. That's what I want to talk about today. So I read the first half and taught on the first half of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 on Easter. I was planning on teaching this like three weeks ago, but I got sick with COVID, and so I've been rearranging and organizing my house for two weeks so, um, so this is two weeks overdue. Usually my sermons are like um, undercooked. This one might be overcooked, but we'll see how, how it goes. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35 through 58. But someone will ask, Paul says, from, rhetorically from the Corinthian community, someone will ask, well, how are the dead raised? What are you talking about dead being raised? How are they, what, what kind of body will they come? How in the world do dead people come back to life? And what are they gonna look like? And then Paul, in typical Pauline fashion, says, you fools. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or uh, of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds have another, and fish have another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun is one kind of splendor, the moon is another, the stars are another, and the stars differ from splendor to splendor. Duh, we all know this. <laughs> so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised, raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown natural, that is earthy dust body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the natural. By the way, the second Adam is Jesus, if you didn't know that. Just, that's like a cheat code. You, you gotta know that to understand what's going on here. <clears throat> The first man, Adam, became a life-giving living being, and the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, and the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Are you following what he's saying? I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I'm gonna tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. 
Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now here's Jesus who has the gift of brevity. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Let's pray. Lord, what we have not, would you give us? And what we are not, would you make us? Through your life-giving and powerful Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Here's a picture of my wife, Ashley Lomas, one of my favorite pictures in the entire world. Um, Her shirt says, count blessings, not calories. Count blessings, not calories. This is words to live by. This was taken, uh, this picture, in the spring of 2017, about five years ago, almost five years ago, exactly. For the years leading up to this moment, my wife had battled a rather destructive eating disorder. Counting calories took up her whole existence, basically, where there wasn't any room for change. There wasn't any room for life, and um, there wasn't even any room for herself, and so uh, she began to dwindle away. This picture is the culmination of my brave wife diving headfirst into an intense recovery program where she graduated on this day and sent me this picture. Count blessings, not calories. This is one of my proudest moments of my wife in her entire life, only to be outdone by delivering uh, two babies through her body like a boss. This was the first one, and then baby, and then baby, and then I was like, okay, these, this one gets bumped down a bit, but so proud of my wife. But we almost never made it to this day. See, Ashley knew that she had to change. She felt that. We both felt that in her life. Her friends around her felt this. Something has to change. She knew that the anxiety outlet of her ED gave way to a full-blown addiction that was threatening her life and our marriage and our future. But she fought it. She fought change. And we all know this feeling, this feeling of staying put and not feeling stuck, continuing the cycle that seems to be destroying us over and over and over again. And why do we do it? Why do we stay stuck? Why do we continue the cycle of destruction even though we know it's destroying us and everyone around us? We do it because change, change seems impossible. Change seems to be so scary and so frightening and so much work that we choose to stay. Now we do this in big ways like with eating disorders and with addiction, but we also do this in small ways, like hold a grudge and withhold forgiveness. This is in really big ways and really small ways. We don't wanna change. We wanna nurse our grudge and we wanna nurse our unforgiveness or our addiction. See, life 
stretches and, and it grows and it invites you into its change, but it's not easy. Change is not easy. Change can feel like death. Change is death. Now, you can resist change, and many of us do. Many of us resist change. And when we do, our resistance to change can and more likely will distort and deform your life. But there's also a great invitation to align ourselves to change. It's movement, the flow of change and what change wants to bring into our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is about change. It's about cosmic, existential, and ultimate change. But it's wrapped, as Paul says in the middle of this section, it's wrapped in a mystery like anything worth pursuing is. It's wrapped in a mystery. Paul says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. That is a metaphor, if you remember from Easter Sunday, that is a metaphor for death. We will not all die and be buried, but we will all be changed. What Paul is saying there is we won't all die and go through the metamorphosis of what resurrection life is, but we will, when the Lord comes back, be changed if we're alive. Now, more on that in a second. Here's the life of a follower of Jesus in one word. Change. If you're taking notes, just write that really big somewhere. The, the, the one word description of what is it like to be a Christian? What is it like to be a follower of Jesus? And the answer is, there will be change. Change. Now, what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians is that though change in life is inevitable, something altogether different happened on Easter morning. There is a deeper and greater invitation for followers of Jesus. What he's saying is what happened to Jesus will happen to us. And the question is, well, what happened to Jesus that will happen to us? This is the question that's posed rhetorically by Paul. What happened to Jesus that will ultimately happen to us? Does anyone remember rule number three from Robin Williams' depiction of Genie in the movie Aladdin? Does anyone remember this? Rule number one, he can't kill anybody. Rule number two, you can't make people fall in love. And rule number three is what? I can't bring people back from the dead. You guys remember this? I can't bring, three, only three rules. I can't bring people back from the dead. And he turns into this little monster. He's like, I don't, don't ask. I don't like doing it. I, as to say, he's done it before. I've done this before, and it's not a pretty picture. Now, why? What, what's going on here? If you're a Christian, you're like, why can't you bring people back from the dead? That's kind of what Jesus does. Well, Jesus is not Jesus, but here's the, re, here's the real. Why can't, what, what's going on here? And the answer, the word is resuscitation. The implication is that if Jeannie brought back someone from the dead, it would be like a thriller situation, if you remember that music video, where a dead corpse would just come to life again. And it's not a pretty sight. A decomposed, disgusting corpse, resuscitated, is not a pretty picture. 
Now, I share that because that is the background to how the Corinthians thought about, quote unquote, things coming back to life. They didn't like it. They, and their framework was resuscitation. And they also thought the body was a prison for the soul. So when Paul says Jesus will, like he resurrected, will bring your dead body back to life, and they said, ew, that's disgusting. Why would a dead corpse want to come back to life again? And the second question is, the body is a prison for the soul. Why would you make the soul go back into the body? That makes no sense at all. In their mind, that, that was resuscitation. And they had no worldview for it. They had no idea that what Paul was talking about was not resuscitation, but something different. Paul was talking about resurrection. Easter morning introduced something altogether different, and that is resurrection. And resurrection is not the dead coming back to life, but the birth of something entirely different. And this is why they said to Paul, what, what, what kind of body would the, someone dead come back to life with? That it makes no sense. What would you, why would you want to do that? And Paul says, well, I'm not talking about resuscitation. I'm talking about resurrection. Paul here is not talking about something dead coming back to life, but the birth of something entirely new and different. What Paul is talking about is a transformation. To explain this glorious transformation, Paul uses a metaphor it's a really powerful metaphor. It's a metaphor that Jesus used to describe what it was like to be a disciple of him. And the metaphor is seeds and trees. The controlling metaphor that Paul uses is the same metaphor Jesus uses when he speaks about what it means to follow him. Now, you were handed a seed on the way in. Would you, everyone pull that out of your pocket or your purse or wherever you stashed it? and hold it in your hand. This is such a important, if you didn't get a, no one got a, someone, okay. If someone next to you has a seed, just share it. I mean, this COVID doesn't exist in this room, right? Just <laughs> hand it to them and then, but I want you to hold it in your hand and I want you to feel it. This is such an important metaphor that Paul uses that I want you to, I want you to feel this one, okay? Now, the metaphor goes something like this. For Jesus, when he uses this metaphor, a seed falls to the ground and dies. And when it does, it births and brings something new. Something the same in that it's organic life, but something completely different in shape and size and capacity, life-giving fruit. So the idea is the thing isn't necessarily buried. A seed isn't buried. What do we call it? We call a seed is planted. There's a difference between being buried and planted. Now, Paul picks up this metaphor in a very similar way and says, when it feels like our bodies or our lives are buried, they're not buried, they're planted like a seed. Jesus says a seed is singular, but when it goes to the earth and it dies, it actually bears multiple fruit and multiple new seeds. It offers shade and fruit and life to those around it. It becomes something altogether different, but the same in kind. It's still organic. It's still, it's still organic life, but it's different. Well, Paul takes up this metaphor and says this. He says, and this is Paul's main point. As you hold this seed in your hand, I want you to look at it. Paul says, and he, he uses this metaphor to explain the future hope of the resurrection and our bodies. 
the seed or our body goes into the ground. And let's say for a second, as you look at the seed, you had no idea. Let's just wipe your, let's imagine that your memory's gone or you didn't know this, okay? Imagine you didn't know that this seed turned into this tree. Let's say it's the first time you're ever hearing about this. Let's say you got through, somehow you've gone through 35 years of life and you never knew this concept. If I hand you the seed, I'm like, this thing turned into that thing. You'd be like, stop playing. <laughs> There's no way in the world this turns into that. I'm like, yeah. You bury it, no, no, you plant it into the ground. This thing bursts open and dies, but then comes back like this. You would, you probably might, you might not believe me. You might say, wait, I, I can't believe that. That's, that's, that seems impossible. Paul uses this metaphor to explain what happens to our bodies when we are buried or planted. What will be brought back from the dead is not just the same seed just cleaned up. It's not like this seed goes in the ground, then it comes out and it's like gold, but it's still seed. Or it like can jump. Like that's not it. It turns into something completely transformed. It turns into something life-giving. This is transformed into something even unexpected. If you had no idea that this turned into that, you're like, that's very unexpected. I did not see that coming at all. Paul says, now, by the way, I don't know if this seed turned into that tree. I don't know what this, you can plant this, and I would love to know in like, a year, I don't know how long it takes a seed to germinate, but I, 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 don't, I don't think it's the, this, the, but that, I think that actually is Paul's point. What kind of body will happen? He's like, who knows? You, we don't know what kind of seed this is. We don't know when you're planted what you will become. It will be glorious. We actually don't know. You would never guess this turned into that. You wouldn't guess it unless you knew it or saw it. And the same thing with the resurrection. Your body goes into the ground, it's planted, it raises to new life something altogether different. The same, but different. Now, the only thing we have to compare to is Jesus' resurrection. Now, for Jesus, he was, he laid in the ground and he died. Now, he came back and it was unexpected. It was so unexpected that they didn't believe it was him. They saw him, but they didn't recognize him. Not because he completely changed. He went into the ground like, you know, Jim Caviezel and came out looking like the rock. It wasn't like anything like that. He was the same person was so unexpected that they didn't believe it was him. Now, with Jesus, Jesus came back from the dead, resurrected, he ate like we eat, he walked like we walk, he spoke like we spoke, he was, we were able to handle him and touch him, he actually told him to do that, but he also was able to walk through walls, walked through walls. He was able to appear, like all of a sudden, he was there, and like, oh, it's like, peace to you all. Like, just shows up. He was also able to disappear. He broke bread, and they were like, yes, that's you. Where'd you go? And he disappeared. He was also able to fly to heaven. He flew to heaven. It's called the ascension. I like it better, fly to heaven. That's my interpretation of what happened there. Paul says... Our bodies will be the same in that it's organic, but it's gonna be completely different. He actually has these like comparisons. This transformation will, will feel like this. You will change from perishable to imperishable. That is, our bodies eventually will not wear down and wear out and break down. We'll go from dishonor to glory or shame. Our 
our bodies won't carry the scars of shame anymore. We'll go from weakness to power. It won't, our bodies won't lack the willpower, the emotional energy, or the physical energy to do what's right or need it. Our bodies will go from natural, that is dust, to divinity, spiritual. And the point is this. The point is resurrection life is a different life. It's new and unexpected. So there are two kinds of life. There is the resuscitated life, and there is the resurrected life. Resuscitation, the resuscitated life, is like our life restored a bit. And we all know how this feels, like we get the job back that we thought we lost, we did something, we lost that account, we, that pitch meeting went really bad, we thought, okay, we're gonna get fired, I'm gonna get fired here, and then you don't, and you get your, you get your job back. And it feels like resuscitation. I got my job back. This is great. Or you get that relationship back you thought was on the brink of disaster. You go through a couple of therapy appointments or whatever. And then this, this, this relationship that you thought was ending is actually back. You're like, oh, we're, we're back. We're actually communicating well. This is resuscitated life. And that, that's great and good. And it feels amazing when it happens. But Easter morning opened up a new possibility. And the new possibility was resurrected life. Not resuscitated life, resurrected life. The resurrection life is not like the resuscitated life. It's not a restoration of one's old life, but the reception of a radically new life. Now, what does that mean? <clears throat> Have you, um, story time. Have you read this book? The Very Hungry Caterpillar, yeah? You read this book? I thought it was funny. I, I've never, I, I mean, I, don't, I didn't really read um, uh, kids' books growing up. Uh, my first kids' book I started reading when Juniper was um, born. Uh, and I thought this was like a super niche book, but it turns out everyone knows this book. <laughs> the Very Hungry Caterpillar. Now, this, is, this book is, is not just a book about a caterpillar. It's a book about life. It's a book about us. It starts like this. <clears throat> The, one day, under the light of the moon, a little baby caterpillar is born and um, comes out of an egg and he's just wandering through life and he comes out like we all come out and come into life very hungry. This hunger is not physical. If you remember from the sermon a few weeks ago, desire, this hunger is a deep longing. We have desire we have a hunger. This is Hosier's song, Take Me to Church. This is like a deep hunger that we have. And that song's not about church, by the way. It's about something else. But it's like, <laughs> it, that, it's about, but it's about hunger. He even says that in the middle of the song. This is hungry work, right? Hungry work. This is life. We all wake up hungry. And we go through life. And it says, on Monday, uh, he ate through one apple, and he was still hungry. On Tuesday, he ate through two uh, pears, and he was still hungry. And on Wednesday, he ate through three plums, and he was still hungry. And then on Thursday, he ate through four strawberries, and he was still hungry. Anyone else feel this way? <laughs> and on Friday, he ate through five oranges, and he was still hungry. And then, on the weekend, 
He ate through one piece of chocolate cake, one ice cream cone, one pickle, one slice of Swiss cheese, one slice of salami, one lollipop, one piece of cherry pie, one sausage, one cupcake, and one slice of watermelon. And then that night, he had a stomachache. <laughs> There's pain associated there. If we've, we've all been here, by the way. You wake up full of pain. But then, church and eats a salad, right? <laughs> And he feels a lot better after a salad, like we all do. But then what happens is that he's not a small caterpillar anymore. He's a big, big caterpillar. And he, he actually builds a little house for himself, and he hides in his house for about two weeks. And, um, and then he pushes out of this uh, little house that he created, this cocoon, and turns into a butterfly. At this point in the book, I do this with Junie. He turns into a butterfly, and he flies like this. It's actually a perfect book to do that. It's like begging for that to happen. Now, this book is a book about life. Now, what's, what's special about this book is that this book was given to Juniper from someone in Ashley's program um, who was very dear to her. She would come home from her program almost every single time she went to their program, and she would um, tell stories about this friend of hers, that they, they, they gelled, they were connected, they helped each other, they, were, uh, they, they had each other's back, they were with each other, they, She's artistic and had a deep soul and I think she had history in the church. And so she got Junie this book. And it, I read to Junie a few times when she was an infant and then I finally read the inscription to Junie in the inside once. And I cried, I literally cried because it was so good. And I wanna read it to you. It says, I was originally drawn to this book as a child by its color, seeming simplicity over the years it has taken, over the years has taken on deeper meaning. The book beautifully captures the different stages and changes of life, along with the associated aches and pains experienced before a major transformation. The caterpillar eats its way through a different food each day of the week, just as we sample new different things that feed our souls, helping us grow and shape our person. Sometimes these experiences become all too much. We reach a point of angst and pain, suffering. Instinctively, we retreat, this is not a sign of weakness or defeat. We cocoon ourselves so that we may reflect and reassess our choices, circumstances, environment until we are ready to face the world again metamorphosized. May your daughter be gentle with herself as she experiences the world in all its wonders. May she grow in the strength, radiance, and courage of her mother. And I read that first part to Junie every time I read this book now to her. This book is exactly what Paul is talking about here. The resurrected life is about transformation. See, life is about change, but the Christian life is about transformation. And there is a flow of change. You can block it, you can eat your way through life and know it's time for a metamorphosis, know it's time for a change, or, and you can become something different, altogether different, or you can stay the same. You can, with all of the pain and the ache, and you know there's a time for the, a change, but you're too afraid to become something different. We get stuck. We get deformed. Or you can say yes to changes flow and yes to transformation. Now, there is a spiritual term for this. This is why we're in Eastertide. Eastertide is the 40 days that follows Jesus' resurrection before ascension 
and before Pentecost. It's important. This is the first year we've actually done proper Eastertides series, and this is a such, such an important uh, part in the church calendar because what the church calendar does brilliantly is takes the church every year through what's called the Pascal Mystery. This is the mystery of Christ's entire, Pascal has to do with Easter, entire Easter season so that we know how to align our bodies to transformation. So I wanna share with you this Pascal mystery from the life and the teachings of Jesus. We can see that there are five clear, distinct moments of change, a cycle, a flow. Now I've taken this directly from Ronald Rollheiser's book, it's my Responsibility to transfer to you what he has taught to me, so that's I'm taking this seriously. So here again is Rollheiser. He says this. Here's the five movements. Good Friday, which is the loss. Easter Sunday, new life. The 40 days, Eastertide, readjustment to the new and grieving the old. Ascension, letting go. And Pentecost, receiving the new spirit. Now, he puts it in more common language like this. Here are the five steps in just common language. Name your deaths, claim your births, grieve what you have lost and adjust to a new reality. Do not cling to the old, let it ascend and give you its blessing and accept the spirit of life that you are in fact living. Now, this cycle is not something that we must undergo just once at one moment of our deaths that will happen, and Paul says it will, but when we lose our, our when we die daily, as, as Jesus says, this is the transformation that we undergo daily in every aspect of our lives. Jesus spoke of many deaths, of dying daily, and many various rising Pentecosts. The Pascal mystery is the secret to life. If you write this down or take a picture or whatever or go back to this later on and spend time, you will see that ultimately your happiness in life depends on you properly going through these stages with Jesus all the time. Now, for Rollheiser, he gives a few examples from his book. Very, very good and helpful examples. I wanna just read to you one example he has. One example that this, this room, it might not hit this room entirely, and I did this on purpose, it'll hit a few of you, but I think it'll, it'll, it'll show us, without being too on the nose, show us what this looks like in real life. So um, let me read to you what he writes. He says, imagine this scenario. You wake up one morning and look at your calendar and come to, to the unwelcome realization that it is your 70th birthday. You are 70 years old. At 70, in terms of this life, you are no longer a young person. And all the cosmetics, exercise, plastic surgery, tummy tucks, and positive attitudes in the world cannot change that. Your youth is dead, but you are not dead. You look at yourself in the mirror and see that there is a very vibrant person, despite the physical limitations of age. In fact, you are richer now, full of a deeper life than when you were 20, 40, or 60 but you are alive as a 70-year-old, not as a 20-year-old. Pascally, or Pascal mystery, in terms of our youth, this is your status. Good Friday has already happened. Your youth has died. 
Resurrection too has happened. You have already received the life of a 70-year-old, a new life, a different form and richer than the life of a 20-year-old. And now you have a choice. You can refuse to grieve and let go of the loss of your youth and like Mary Magdalene on Easter morning, trying to cling to Jesus when she knew it was him. Remember that? And Jesus said to her, Mary, don't cling to me. Don't cling to the old. You have to let me go so you can receive the spirit. Like Mary Magdalene on Easter morning trying to cling to Jesus she once knew, try to hold on to your youth. If you do that, you will be blocking ascension and you will be unhappy, fearful, and frustrated 70-year-old because you will be trying to live your life as someone with someone else's spirit. A schizophrenic endeavor at best. Pentecost cannot happen for you and, will, and you will daily grow more fearful and happy about aging. However, should you let your youth ascend you should be able to say, it was good to be 20, good to be 30, good to be 40 and 50 and 60, but it's even better to be 70. Then Pentecost will happen. You will receive the spirit for the life that you are already in fact living, the life of a 70-year-old, which is a different spirit than for someone who is 20. Some of the happiest people in the world are 70 years old and some of the unhappiest people in the world are that age too. The difference is not and who has kept himself or herself slimmest and most useful looking, but in Pentecost. The happy 70-year-old woman or man who has received the spirit for someone that age, that spirit which scripture says is given to each of us in a most particular way for each particular circumstance in life. It is interesting in this context to note that the ancient Egyptians used to mummify their dead, soaking dead body, bodies in formaldehyde so as to somehow keep them intact forever. As an image, this is the antithesis of the Pascal mystery. The Christian idea is to let go, to let nature take its course, to trust that God who once gave life will now give it in an even deeper way. If I am 70, but trying through every technique and cosmetic known to preserve my youth, I am in my own way attempting to mummify my body. The Pascal mystery should set us free from that kind of unhappiness. Now, I use this example of, of age because for some of us, that, that doesn't ring true. For others of us, that, that, that rings really true. You might be 30 and you're like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not 21 anymore. Have you grieved for that and let that go? Or are you still trying to live like a 21-year-old in Neverland, San Francisco? <laughs> I want to stay young forever. Have you grieved that and let it go? And like, I want to accept the spirit of the age I'm at. I want to make my life about giving life to other people. Maybe you heard that, um, <clears throat> that announcement before the sermon where we're, like, we're calling for leaders to, 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 to lead in our church. You're like, I'm not old enough for that yet. I'll be a leader when I'm like 60. I don't have anything to give right now. Have you grieved the fact that you're, you're actually someone now that needs to be giving to others, not always showing up to receive? Have you done that yet? Have you gone through this process? This isn't just about, this is with everything. This is like the honeymoon of your marriage. That's gone. You're not, you have not been married for 20 days anymore. You're married for 20 years. That's a whole different animal. Have you grieved that and accepted what this is? This is all of life, all of it. And this is what we're invited into during this season it's to step into Jesus's like flow of change, flow of transformation, going from death 
to resurrection, to grieving and letting go, to fully releasing and then receiving the spirit of whatever Jesus has for us that's new. A few weeks, a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago now, we, COVID went through our house and me and Juniper and Nowen caught it first um, and then like a week later, Ashley caught it. And so for us, um, praise God, it meant uh, tons of movies and cleaning our closets, really. It wasn't that bad. And so, um, so that's what we did. It was actually kind of fun. I got super into doing laundry, which like, is new for me. I was like, I love doing laundry. I, well, I hadn't thought of this before. This is amazing. Um, and, um, I, and we cleaned out our closets. And so I went to, back to work about <clears throat> five days before Ashley was able to kind of leave the house again. So Ashley was at home, and she, she had this closet that... Um, that she, she had yet to clean out. We had done almost every single closet in the house, but there's one. And I was, um, I was at work on a Tuesday, last Tuesday, and my phone just started blowing up with text messages. And it was from Ashley. And she's mad. And she's triggered. And there might have been explicitive in there. I don't, I don't really remember. And, um, and I read them, and she's cleaning out this closet that she's avoided for years. And it had a lot of nice, nice jackets and dresses and clothes from before her program, before her two kids. And she's trying them on and going dark really fast. And I can't do anything but say I'm sorry and that she's doing the right thing. And then we talk about it later. And then I send her this chapter from Rollheiser. And this is, to be honest, a very, very vulnerable story. This whole sermon, I should have, gave a bunch of warnings at the beginning. I just forgot. This is very vulnerable, but she actually wanted me to share this to the end of this because this, this is why. Because sometimes your change is not done. You think it is, but there is a closet still. Sometimes a literal closet. Sometimes a metaphorical closet that you don't want to go back to And when you do, you find that you want to cling, that you don't want to let go, but you have to let go. Ashley had to let go. She had to grieve and let these jackets ascend to the donation pile (laughs) and receive their blessing and accept the spirit of the life that she is in fact living right now. Because our son Nowen is on the floor next to her, looking at her, asking for her to feed him with her body that she was not able to do when she wore those clothes. And so she had to let them go. Paul ends by saying, therefore, this is long chapter, ends by saying, therefore, brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you, Keep the work going. Keep doing the work. The work is not in vain. The, the thing, the curiosity about this whole chapter that I had to preach on this chapter, where I'm like, even typically if I had a sermon and I didn't give it when I was supposed to give it, I'd just like, I'll, just, I'll get to it later. But week after week, I'm like, can I teach it this week? No, I can't teach it that week. Nick, no, and I, Jess was supposed to teach this week. I'm Jess, I'm gonna have to give you a bump because I have to teach this sermon. The reason why is because 
there's this curiosity that I had about this last verse. Paul is talking about a, a, tr- a metamorphosis of our resurrected lives, and he ends by saying, therefore, the work you're doing today is not in vain. What is that about? The work is worth it. The work of transformation today, the work that you're doing today, the work of inv- in stepping into this mystery of God, this transformation that Jesus brings to the resurrection and ascension and the Holy Spirit coming, Pentecost, this work is not in vain. Change is not in vain. What you're doing, if you start showing up every single week at the carpets or at the prayer team or confessing to someone and it's always confessing this broken part of you or, or this part that feels like an open wound, this part that feels like it's dying. You're like, why haven't I let this go yet? The work is not in vain. If you have that closet that you're so afraid to go into and you don't wanna go into it or you have this change that you don't want to address, the work is not in vain. Your work is not in vain. Hebrews says that it was the joy that was set before him that Jesus went to the cross. It was the joy set before him that Jesus started the Pascal mystery. The joy of Good Friday, death, resurrection, spending time with his disciples, ascension, and then the spirit coming. All of that was the joy that was before him. Going before us like a good forerunner, knowing that we've been invited into the same mystery and come into transformation over and over and over again. This work is worth it. Would you stand with me as we pray? The church practices, actually you might not know this, but you practice the Pascal mystery every single Sunday when you receive communion. When you walk forward and you open your hands to communion, you're receiving this mystery in your body. This death, resurrection, you're proclaiming, Paul says, the resurrection until he comes. You're proclaiming his death until he comes. You're proclaiming this mystery, this Jesus going through all of this and you're taking in your body going, I'm stepping into this as well. I'm stepping into this metamorphosis, this change, this transformation myself. And ultimately, one day, Jesus will do it for us. Ultimately, our bodies will raise up from the ground where it's been planted and will be new. Until then, there is renewal happening in us always. Lord Jesus, I pray for this church that we would, with courage, standing firm in the faith of Jesus Christ, step into our own change. Step into the hard places. I always think it's so interesting, Lord, how Paul uses the word stand firm, be immovable. When it comes to change, when change is so unsettling, but there is something about when we go through the change, Jesus, and your form of it, in your flow, there is something very stabilizing about it. There's something freeing about it. And so I pray right now that God, you would help us to name our deaths, to claim our births, to grieve what we've lost and adjust to a new reality, to let go and not cling to the old, and together accept the life that you've given us, in Jesus' name.